Not guilty, the judge announced. The prisoner may go free. Bailiff, uncuff this man. Prosecution has waived its right to retrial at any time. Then addressing the prisoner, the judge continued, Sir, do you know what this means? These charges can never be brought against you ever again. You are free to go. Imagine if you were the man with a death sentence hanging over your head. Can you imagine how you would feel? Can you imagine the exhilaration in your heart and soul as you heard the words, Not guilty. Imagine a second scene with me. A guilty, condemned prisoner who's already serving his time is suddenly pardoned by the governor or the president. All charges have been dropped. The sentence removed. The prisoner is set free. He is told that he can live as a free man once again, regardless of what anyone else says or thinks. And in this remarkable case, even the guilty verdict is expunged from his record. From now on, there will be no trace of any crime having ever been committed. If you were that prisoner, how relieved would you be to hear that there will be nothing hanging over your head anymore? That How relieved you would be that there would be no felony charges following you around to keep you from voting or, or maybe making it difficult for you to gain new employment? Your record is clean. And you feel reborn. You are free to live your life once again. Now both of these scenarios are much like what has happened to us in Jesus Christ. But even more. We were surrendered to sin. And now we are surrendered to Him. And we have put our faith in Him to save us. And He has set us free. He has pardoned us from all the crimes that we were guilty of. The charges have been dropped, and we have been given a new life in Christ. How exhilarating, how satisfying to be finally in Christ. Now, the results of being in Christ are many, but they are often not understood, not appreciated by the people who have received them. People like us, perhaps you don't even know what it really means to be in Christ. So, a couple of weeks ago, we began a series of messages about who we are and what we have in Christ. Do you know who you are? Do you know what you have in Christ? Last week we talked about our redemption from sin and death. And we said that in Christ we are redeemed and set free. Last week I raised a question, a very important question for everyone who has been redeemed by Christ. And I asked, once we are redeemed, once we have been set free from our old way of doing things, why would we ever want to go back? Why would we want to return to life as it was before Christ? Perhaps you remember the story about the little birds that A.J. Gordon set free from that rusty birdcage. The little boy, remember, had trapped these little birds in the cage and had planned to feed them to his cat. And so A.J. Gordon bought the cage and the birds, took them behind the church, and set them free. And that is what we were. We were those trapped and frightened little birds. Why would we ever want to go back inside the cage and live the life we were living then? How much better it would be to claim 
the new life that we have in Jesus Christ and to explore all of the ramifications of the new life he's given us. Back in my college years, which was just a few years ago, some of my classmates at Milligan uh, and I formed a singing group one summer. We weren't sure what we were going to do for the summer. We approached the college, you know, would you like to have a group go out? You haven't had a group for a while. Go to church camps and so on, try and influence uh, high school kids to come to Milligan. And they said, well, we really can't afford to send you out. So we said, well, it's on our heart to go. So we're going to make our own itinerary. And so the six of us got together, and we started setting up places we could sing through that summer and trying with the love offerings, you know, to make a little something for the next fall and tuition. And so we sat down that winter and spring to figure out what we would call ourselves. What, you know, have you ever done that? I don't know if you've ever been part of a group. Maybe it was a singing group, maybe some other kind of group, and everybody gets together. Let's, let's name ourselves. Oh, man, the names is big, long list, all kinds of ideas. It went on and on and on. This discussion was crazy. And it, for days, we're thinking about it, praying about it. What should we call ourselves? And we finally settled on a name. We called ourselves The Great Exchange. And I thought, I don't know about this. Maybe we need to explain this every time we go somewhere. Does anybody have any idea why we would choose the name The Great Exchange for a Christian group? Because there is a great exchange going on. It's an amazing exchange that is happening. That Jesus gave something and we receive something. That Jesus took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness. That Jesus took upon himself all of the death and all of the punishment that would have been ours, it was rightfully ours, and he gave us what we didn't deserve. And in that exchange, our lives were changed forever. Forty-one years later, I am still impressed by that great exchange. I, I don't know of anything better. I don't know of any deal that you could find on the internet or you know on Wall Street or, or maybe in somebody's back room that's better than this deal. This great exchange that we have in Christ. Do you understand? Do you appreciate what Jesus did for you? I hope so. He gave his perfect life in exchange for our sin-filled lives. 2 Corinthians 5.21 I read at the beginning of the service today. It says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Last week we talked about being redeemed, brought back from the penalty of our sins and from death and from hell. And today we want to add to that our understanding of what Jesus did for us. He not only saved us, but he gave us his righteousness. He gave us his goodness. He gave us his blamelessness. He gave us his right standing with God. When we had lost all of those things, he gave us his. The Bible says that Jesus' righteousness was transferred to us. We didn't have any righteousness of our own, so we were in desperate need of such thing. We had sinned against God. We had rebelled against God. We had run away from God in order to do what we wanted to do, not what God wanted us to do. And then Jesus came to earth and he did differently than the rest of us. He lived a sinless life. He lived a life that was totally in step with whatever God wanted him to do. A life totally surrendered to God's will. And then at the end of that earthly life, he gave his life. He gave up his life on the cross of Calvary. 
And he not only gave up physical life, but he took upon himself the sins of every one of us, the sins of the whole world. And he died the most horrible death imaginable. On the third day, Jesus came back from the grave. Jesus rose from the dead. Because death simply could not hold on to such a person. The book of Hebrews talks about the power of an indestructible life. Yes, he died. He physically died, but death could not hold him. And he rose victorious from the grave. And then he chose to give everyone who chooses to believe and follow him his righteousness. What a great exchange, an amazing exchange. Now, Jesus' righteousness was a gift because the price for sin had already been paid. We didn't have to pay anything. And it was a gift because it could not be earned by our good deeds or maybe any sacrifices we might want to make personally. No matter what we could do, no matter what we could pay, no matter if we collected all of our money and put it all together, all of our goodness and all all of the things that even as a group we could say, let's lay it out here on the table. We could not purchase that righteousness. It was given to us as a gift by God's grace. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the sinless Son of God was transferred, it was imparted, it was imputed, it was given to us when we least deserved it. And our unrighteousness was replaced by Jesus' righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to ask this morning, how many people in this room are Christians? Would you just raise your hand? If you're a Christian, if you have you know, placed faith in Christ and say, I'm counting on him to save me. Okay, good. Most of the people in this room have raised their hands today. That's good. Do you believe now that you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that you are the righteousness of Christ? may not be as easy for you to affirm. It may not be as easy for you to just, yeah, I, I have the righteousness. Yeah, I am the righteousness of Christ because this concept kind of runs counterintuitive to our experience. Experience of our failures, experience of our sins and our shortcomings. Even after coming to Christ, the sins are still there, not as many, and they're hopefully fewer and fewer, and, and God is you know, transforming and changing us bit by bit, day by day, week by week, year by year. And yet, we know we still slip up, we still mess up, we still fail sometimes. Do you understand the implications of the fact that Jesus has given us his righteousness and we not only possess it, we are that righteousness. We are the righteousness of Christ here in the world today. Very, very big deal. So I'm going to talk about two implications of that. The first one has already been alluded today, as, as Steve read some scripture in the communion time. That is simply this. We are no longer under condemnation. There, we are not under condemnation. And the righteousness of Christ that was given to us took away condemnation from our lives and from our hearts. We are no longer under God's judgment for the sins that we have committed or the sins we will ever commit. Not only the past, but it's what we may do today or what we may ever do in our life here on earth. We are no longer unrighteous, for we are the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So turn with me over to Romans 8. Steve read 
from Romans 7, but also the first verse or so of Romans 8. And Romans 8, 1 and 2. Read with that me, please. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has chosen to save us, to redeem us, yes. And we have chosen to receive the salvation that he offers freely to everyone in Christ. And now, because of that, no condemnation hangs over our head anymore. No judgment, no threat that someday we will have to appear before a great white throne of God and God will say, you are a sinner, you go over here where all the other sinners go. Because in Christ, we have received the righteousness of Christ and we are the righteousness of Christ. There is judgment waiting in the wings for everyone who is without Jesus Christ, who is outside of Jesus Christ. Steve alluded to that as well. But because we are in Christ, there is no judgment. There is no condemnation. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 adds to this that the wages of sin is death, which is not just physical death, but everlasting death in hell for eternity. And every person who has ever lived besides Jesus Christ has sinned, and without Christ... Every one of us would be destined for eternal punishment in hell. It would be the just, righteous thing to do. But in Christ, this is no longer the case. And so everything changes when you step into Christ. When you get into Christ, you no longer are condemned. No longer will you stand with those who are condemned. Perhaps you remember the story about Jesus in John chapter 8 where a woman who was caught in adultery was dragged before Jesus and kind of thrown at his feet. Perhaps you remember how the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus, wondering what he would do, kind of to put him to the test. I've always wondered, haven't you, where was the man caught in adultery? Why wasn't he brought? And why, why was there this double standard among the Pharisees? Well, we'll bring the woman, we'll see what he does with her. But the man can go free. I don't get that part of it. But the point was, they wanted to see how Jesus would respond. Would Jesus follow the law of Moses, which said if somebody was caught in adultery, you stoned them publicly. Everybody comes together and they stone them to death in the city square. What would Jesus do? Or would he somehow ignore the law of Moses? And then they would criticize him for that. But let's see what Jesus does. John 8, 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, uh, uh, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? They were using this question as a trap, using this as a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
I wondered what he wrote, haven't you? Did he start listing some of their sins? Hmm. Stealing, lying, you know, false witness. Whatever those guys with the stones in their hands had been guilty of, Jesus knew it was in their heart. I think maybe he wrote those down. They started seeing what he's writing in the sands. Oh, okay. I guess I won't keep my stone. They dropped it and they left. It says that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. No one has condemned me, Lord. Then neither do I. But go and leave your life of sin. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Even the sins that we commit after we come to Christ do not condemn us or take away our salvation because our salvation is not based on us and our actions. It is based on God's grace. Let's get that squared away. Let's get that in the beginning. From beginning to end, our salvation is not based on our goodness and our good works and our sacrifices and our love or, or anything else that we could offer. Our salvation are given, uh, and righteousness are given by God's grace. And if we hold on to Jesus, we will never be condemned for our sins. Our guilt has already been decided by the court of all courts. Our sentence has been pronounced by the judge of all judges. And yet we have received from the King of Kings a full pardon. That's amazing. That's awesome. John 3.17 follows John 3.16, which we all know. And it says this, that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn us. That was not his point, to come and condemn us. He could have done that. We already stood condemned. He could have just pronounced sentence when he came. But that is not why he came. And that's some very good news. He had every right to condemn us, but he did not come to do so. He came instead to take our place and to give us his righteousness, the great exchange. He bore our shame. By his stripes we are healed, Isaiah says. During a hurricane down in the Gulf of Mexico, a news report highlighted that those oil rigs out there in the Gulf have a special device to save them in the event of a disaster. Now, if a hurricane would come along and start to wipe out one of these oil rigs, those guys are kind of stuck. They're sitting ducks. You know, it takes a while for somebody to get to them and, and rescue them. And so they have a device that if that happens, or maybe there's a sudden fire on the oil rig, that they can escape and be safe. And this device is, is a bullet-shaped bus. They all can jump in. There's enough room from everybody for everybody on on staff, every one of the workers, they jump in there, they strap in with their seatbelts and the lid closes and it shoots down into the to the sea and away from the disaster that's going on there and they just float around until finally the rescuers come and save them. This device parallels the theological truth of this first verse of Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Justifi- justification in Christ, you know, our righteousness doesn't mean that the world's not going to still fall apart, that there's not going to be disasters, that there's not going to be a hurricane, there's not going to be a fire. 
but that when the storm takes its course, when the fire comes, that the welfare of the workers is dependent on whether they are in the rescue device or not. His name is Jesus, after all. In Christ we will never be condemned for our sins, past, present, or future. When I was a boy, and some of you were younger, you remember singing a, a hymn we used to sing. It's called The Solid Rock. And I want you to sing a couple of verses with me, if you will. If you know it, if you don't, just listen, because this is very powerful stuff. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Listen to this last verse. Let's sing. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, fall us to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We are no longer under condemnation. This is what it means to be given the righteousness of Christ. No longer will we ever face that condemnation. Remember that. Because sometimes we get to feeling condemned. We don't need to. Don't let anyone tell you that you are. Second implication. We need to live in the righteousness that we have been given in Christ. We need to claim the righteousness that we have been given in Christ. We need to walk in the righteousness we have been given in Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21 where we began this day. It says, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let's take a brief survey this morning, but no show of hands. I want you to put up your hands. Do you ever sin? Do you ever sin against God? Do you ever do something that you regret? Something that you know is wrong, even as a Christian? And do you ever feel guilty or ashamed for what you did? Do you ever get to feeling condemned or unworthy, even, of God's love, protection, because of your sins? If so, it's not unusual. I want you to know there's not something weird about you. It is a common experience among Christians to start feeling this sense of condemnation and shame and embarrassment over the sins that follow their coming to Christ. So don't beat yourself up over that. God does not expect perfection. He does not demand that we live a sin-free life after we come to Christ. In fact, He knows that we won't live that way. And so... He gave us the righteousness of Christ. He said, you don't have any righteousness of your own, but I'm going to give you the righteousness of my son Jesus. You will sin. Just don't wear your unrighteousness around because you've been robed with the righteousness of Christ. 
don't walk in your unrighteousness and the mistakes you may make, the sins that you may commit as a Christian, walk in the righteousness that you have been given in Christ. And it changes everything when you do. Now we have an enemy, his name is Satan. And he is not only a liar, but he's an accuser. He'd be like the person in the courtroom, you know, that is the prosecuting attorney that's bringing all the charges against you. Look at all these things he did. Look at the evidence. I can just line it all up here. It's all over the place, judge. And even after we come to Christ, he keeps trying to accuse us in our own hearts. He keeps trying to bring to our memory or to bring up to the surface things that we've done even in the last few days. And his goal is to make us feel ashamed and condemned and dirty and unworthy of the love and grace of God. And he will try to use his sins against us any way that he can. That's his job. That's his goal. That's his dream. And often this idea of condemnation is like the trump card. He's kind of holding on you. And yeah, they seem to be getting a little bit stronger, a little bit more of a threat than they were before. They're gaining, they're growing, they're doing more for Christ. God is being honored in their life. But, yeah, they did this. I'm going to remind them. He throws that card out on the table of your guilt and of your shame. He says, think about that for a while. And you won't be so strong in the Lord anymore. Now, here's this interesting thing. If somehow after we came to Christ, because of the goodness of Christ, not our own, because of the grace of God that was given to us, our salvation, and somehow we come back to thinking, you know, I'm kind of earning things now, I'm doing good things, I'm doing more good than I used to, and my relationship is built on good things I do for God. If you start getting into that mindset, we become even more susceptible to these attacks. Because now we're weighing it. We're saying, oh wait, you know, the scale's gotten a little bit off here. I've been doing a lot of good things, and that really looks good, and now I'm doing these bad things. And Satan uses that against us. We must always remember that the whole relationship is not built on goodness and badness and good deeds and not-so-good deeds. It's built on what Jesus has already done. Because our righteousness, as Paul says, is his filthy rags. But if we remember that the goodness we have, the righteousness we have is not ours, but it's Jesus's, then we can stand firm. Colossians 2.10 says something interesting. It says that we are complete in Christ. What does that mean, to be complete in Christ? Because I don't feel very complete sometimes. Do you? I don't feel like I've arrived. Colossians 2.10 says that I'm complete in Christ. Well, a couple of things it means. One is that I don't lack anything because I have Christ. I, I lack, John lacks, but Christ lacks nothing. In Christ, God has already given me everything I need to be satisfied, to be joyful, to be victorious as a follower of Christ. I am not inadequate or lacking in anything that is needed for my life to live for God or to bring glory to God. For Jesus fills in everything I lack. And he fills in everything you lack in yourself. In fact, that's why we're in this whole series. What do we have in Christ? Who are we in Christ? Because we are not lacking in any way once we are in Christ. Because Jesus is not lacking in any way. The second thing it means for us to be complete in Christ is we should be at peace, therefore. We should not be agitated. We should not be fearful. We should not be anxious. Not 
not scared of our enemy. We should not be, be, frighted, be frightened by a, a defeated enemy or preoccupied by his threats. We don't need to get into phantom battles with him because Jesus has already won. Jesus has already defeated him. In Christ, we are complete. And we can be at peace in that. Even though there is a daily struggle, even though there are times when we fail, sometimes when we succeed, we need to live in the righteousness that we have already been given in Christ. And I'm convinced a lot of Christians don't do this, don't understand this. One of these Christians said to his pastor one day, he said, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm a miserable sinner. There's no help for me. I have prayed to God. I have tried to be good. And, and I have tried to do the right thing at the right time. But it seems like I'm always failing. I'm always uh, messing up. And the pastor just asked a question. He says, well, do you believe in the life, the death, and the, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He said, well, yeah, I do. The pastor continued. Well, if Jesus came and stood right here beside you this very moment, what would your words be to him? And he said, well, I would look up to him and I would confess my sins to him and I would tell him that I feel like a lost sinner and there's no hope for me because that's how I feel. And then the pastor said, well, what do you think Jesus would say back if you said that to him? And suddenly it was like a light bulb went off in the man's head. His countenance changed from this tortured, anxious expression to a look of peace and tranquility. And he said, well, Jesus would said, say, I've already forgiven you of all your sins. You're under no condemnation. You're free. We need to claim the righteousness that we've been given. We need to live in that righteousness. We've already read from Romans 8, which says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And later in that same chapter, Paul talks about uh, the relationship that we have with Christ and how it changes things and the different possibilities of what may come to our life. And if you skip down to chapter 8, verse 31 of Romans, it says that this, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us, what? All things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, I got looking at these questions that Paul's asking, and the answer's the same. Listen to the questions that Paul is putting out here. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one, right? No one. How will he not also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? Of course he will. Who will bring any charge against us when God is the one justifying us? Nobody can. Who is the one who condemns? No one. We've got Christ standing beside us. He is standing up for us. He is giving us all of his righteousness. Who can possibly condemn us? 
And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. No one no could possibly do that. And I hope we can begin to understand what amazing things we have in Christ. Claim the righteousness of Christ. You have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. Walk in that righteousness. Live in that righteousness every day. Because what we see too often is Christians living in fear and timidity and weakness. And our enemy, the devil, is given more credit than he deserves. He stands ready to accuse us and to remind us of our sins so that we forget for a moment that we have the righteousness of Christ, that we are the righteousness of Christ. So we must not walk in our own righteousness. Or we will fall, we will fail. But if we walk in His righteousness, we will walk in strength and power and in victory. Ephesians 6. You've read this before. It talks about the armor of God. It says, take up the full armor of God. And there's one piece that is called righteousness. What is it? What is the, the breast piece of righteousness? What is the breastplate protect a soldier from protects his vitals you know arrows the swords can't get through that armor to hit his liver or stomach or his heart so that he can continue fighting the battle and this righteousness has been given us as a part of our armor that we can walk in every day and no matter what Satan throws at us we have the righteousness of Christ to protect us. So claim the righteousness you have been given. Walk in the righteousness you've been given. Live in the righteousness you've been given every day. Remember Caleb Sana getting up here to preach a few weeks ago and he talked about 2 Corinthians 5.21, beginning verse of today. And he said that this is where his life dramatically changed. Can it change your life as well? I think so. It has changed mine, even since that day. To know every day that I don't stand in my own righteousness, I don't stand in my own goodness, but I stand in the righteousness of Christ, and it changes how you view your life. I want you to say it with me a few times. Let's go to the next slide there. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Say that with me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now you may be here today and you're really, really tired of walking in weakness. You're really tired of the struggle and feeling like a failure. And somehow this condemnation came back on you. Somehow God is not smiling upon your life. Are you tired of being timid in your faith? If you believe in Jesus and if you're following Him every day, I want to give you an opportunity to just stand up for Jesus and sing as loud as you can in a few minutes your faith in Jesus. I want you to claim once again in that act, that moment, the righteousness that you have been given in Christ. And I want you to declare with anyone else that would stand with you that we're going to walk in this righteousness. We're going to live in this righteousness every day. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. I'm going to invite you to sing with us as we sing today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to stand for you. Thank you for the righteousness you have given us that sometimes we forget about, sometimes we, 
we have uh, failed to remember. But you have given us, you have even made us the righteousness of Christ. And we are to claim it and to walk in it and live it day by day. Father, I thank you that as a body of believers, we can encourage each other while it is still today. And we can draw each other up to the strength, the position, the place, the purpose that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray today that your strength would be in us. And that from this day on, we would not live in timidity and fear and anxiety and weakness, but that we would be the righteousness of Christ that you have made us to be. We ask for your blessing now, in Jesus' name. Amen. You are a Christian. I want to invite you just to kind of make your way forward as much as you can across here. Let's sing together. Let's sing of what we have in Jesus'